Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes, and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Shawley. I hope you're very well. It's Wednesday, no PMQs this week, although we'll be back next week. And in fact, next week we'll bring you details of how you can come and see us doing PMQs in front of a live audience. It's going to be very exciting. Uh, tickets go on sale very soon. We'll bring you details of that. Uh, so on today's episode, we've got Disunited Kingdom, political news from the four quarters of the UK, England, Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland. But first, we kick off with our columnist panel. Normally, it's Crampon. No Alice Thompson this week. I think she's off having a, a spray town with David Ivanovich. Uh, so instead, we've got Robert Crampton and Susie Boniface from The Daily Mirror. Uh, now, we've barely even begun, and I'm already getting abuse from all sides for d- my discussions of uh, Dominic Robin. All I literally did was played what he had said. <laughs> Full-on government bashing so far this morning, says John. Uh, Boris Holiday, ongoing rab attack. Bit more balance wouldn't go amiss before your morning giggly flirting session with Ms Frostrop. Uh, thank you for that, John. Although somebody else has got in touch to say, very impressed uh, with the forensic analysis of Dominic Raab's recent stewardship of the uh, Foreign Office. And uh, that's from uh, Henry. And Dave also says, no criticism of this end. Keep going. Hashtag Raab. So, Robert, where do you stand on Dominic Raab? Um, am I being too hard on him? I'll try and... I'd, I'll swerve that and try to provide some balance. Uh, Go on. Not that I think you're being particularly unbalanced. <laughs> I, I suspect he isn't. He may well be fighting for his job this afternoon if, if he goes badly for him. And I think Tom Tugendhat has is, is, uh, got him in his sights. But I'm not sure he should be fighting for his job. I think this whole thing has been obviously a, a, a dreadful from start to finish. And he didn't, Dominic Rubb has not done himself any favours with the holiday. And partly by his personal manner, the fact that he sort of. Uh, not only does he sort of doesn't seem to show much compassion or remorse, he he kind of makes out that we should all be celebrating this. What is it? The biggest humanitarian airlift in living memory. I guess he's talking. I mean, that's like the, celebrating Dunkirk. I mean, in fact, this will probably become, won't it? Given the British penchant for uh, heroic, heroic disa- disasters, 
this will become a Dunkirk there's a story, mythology. Is it in the so, I, there's a story in the eye today that um, uh, Ben Wallace is describing it as mm. Dunkirk by WhatsApp. Right. Because they're trying to get the last people out but but where, but, by but, messaging them. But whether he should be fighting for his job, whether that's entirely fair, uh, whether he would just be a scapegoat if he went, uh, I doubt, I, I think, is not the case. I mean, I think, the, you know, the, the, this is... This is too big a uh, disaster to, to, to put at the, the, the feet of one person. What do you think, Susie? What's, what's your take on, on Dominic Raab? Is it unfair? I mean, actually, the thing... I've spoken to um, about half a dozen of the MPs on this committee who are going to be uh, grilling him later, and actually, they're quite keen to say he's been hopeless, it's a disaster zone, but he, removing him doesn't change the fact that mm-hmm. clearly the Foreign Office machine mm-hmm. has failed on this. Who's in charge of the machine? Well, that is a good point. Whose job is it to manage that machine, to refine that machine, to make sure the machine work better if it's broken? That's the job of any manager, whether you're editing a newspaper or running a supermarket, you're in charge of the machinery. And if the machinery is gone, you're gone. He shouldn't be fighting for his job because he shouldn't still be in it. Simple as that. Interestingly, though, there was a really good piece in the Mail on Sunday over the, I think, last weekend, not this one, just gone, the one before, about Tom Tugendhat uh, uh, on the border with Belarus uh, talking to uh, migrants who were um, finding it difficult to get across the borders and so on. And he was talking fluid, fluent Arabic hmm. and giving this. He'd had this, you know, in the middle of the, the sort of the crisis we've had in the last few weeks, here is someone with a veteran's background who was speaking in, in passion speeches in the House of Commons who was really cutting through to the public, who suddenly went on a foreign jaunt and was chattering away in fluent Arabic. If that wasn't a job application for foreign secretary, <laughs> then I'm not sure what was. And I think he'd be much, much better at it. I mean, Dominic Raab's got two law degrees and absolutely no idea. So get him rid. Get gone. Now, I, I, I wonder whether part of the reason he's getting so much criticism is actually more to do with tone and what he's said rather than what they've done. Because ultimately, you know, he is the foreign secretary... Boris Johnson is Prime Minister. Boris Johnson knew what the situation was. He also went on holiday too as well. And, you know, Ben Wallace is, you know, the defence secretary. But Ben Wallace mm. seems to have just struck a better tone, uh, Robert. Ben, and, Wa- ben Wallace looks like he cares. I mean, he doesn't necessarily look like the most the most scintillating administrator in the world, but he looks like uh, he, he cares about the... Uh, about the situation, about the Afghans, about the the consequences of... I mean, he's a veteran, the consequences of uh, t- 20-year campaign, what that means for the people who lost their lives. Uh, Dominic Raab looks like somebody who's sort of kind of slightly got his mind on other things, namely his own career. I think Susie's right about that. And my problem with the analogy, the, the sort of running a supermarket analogy is if head office, i.e. America, the White House... Uh, are essentially responsible. You essentially contracted out your foreign policy to uh, a more superior power. Then I'm not sure how much you can be held accountable for it. And so then it does just come down to managing a crisis rather than averting it. That's the that's the that's the issue. Yeah, which is what he's trying to say. I suppose they're saying they've they, you know they've, they've managed it reasonably well. I'm not sure about that, but. Do you, um, Susie, is there anyone in the government, because I know you're a fan of the government, is there anyone in the government who you think has come out of this well or equipped themselves competently? 
Tom Tugendhat by a mile. Yeah. Uh, Although, as your point like is, he's not actually in the Prime government. Minister to me, yeah. But he's not actually in the government, which is half the trouble. Now, I mean, it's not a political point, this. I, mean, I'll, I know I'll be accused as a mere economist of having a, a party side. Surely not. I'm, well, I'm not. I've never been a member of any political party, and I've worked for right wing and left wing papers, so you figure out how I vote. But um, if you have a government where the Prime Minister watches Kabul begin to fall and then decides to leave for his holiday, that's probably worse than the Foreign Secretary, who is Deputy Prime Minister, who was already on holiday when Kabul, uh, the march to Kabul began. They're both, you know, you've got, a, you've got Priti Patel, you've got Gavin Williamson, who at this very moment, I'm sure, is strapping on his big boy pants for the absolute going over he's going to get in September. Um, or, you know, it is September now. In the next few weeks, as testing goes mad, as the infections go mad, as teachers go mad, uh, and he won't have half of anything, you know, lined up but know what the hell he's doing. You've got a government here of people who are in government, not because they're very good at administrating and running and organising and having great ideas, but because they were loyal to the ideal of Brexit. And that is not a reason to promote someone. Just because someone agrees with me that, I don't know, that Geronimo should have been shot, for example, doesn't mean I should promote them to, to run the country if I was prime minister. <laughs> you, you promote someone who is good at that job. You promote Tom, you know, a veteran to work in the MOD. You promote someone who's got experience of health to be in the Ministry of Health, surely, and not a journalist to run the country because they're cracked with deadlines and they do everything at the last minute in a hurry. You know, I do wonder though because I'm, you know, Tom Tom Tuchanart comes on the uh, the show a lot, and he, uh, you know, he seems to know what he's talking about. I do wonder he's in that sort of lucky position in that he know, he hates Boris Johnson and Boris Johnson hates him, so he can say and do what he like. And actually, it's a bit like what happened actually when Boris Johnson went into government when Jacob Rees-Mogg was the darling of a particular wing well, of the party, and then goes into government. I'm thinking also of Frank Field, who everybody loved as a, as a bank a backbencher. Who, yeah, go, who had, that's a good point. Who had great ideas mm. about welfare reform and so on, and then he actually uh, became a junior minister, I think, in the under the, in the first Blair government. To think the unthinkable. To think the unthinkable. And he and, did. And he did, <laughs> and he lasted about six months, yeah. didn't he? Because yeah. he turned out... I mean, I'm not, that's not necessarily a criticism of Frank. It, just, it, it might be that that is Tom Tugendhat's role in life, as it was... Frank Fields, as it was, I don't know, Tam Diels or... Yeah, you do Yeah, that. you still but... need those disruptive voices and people that are saying something different to highlight what's going on. I mean, Johnny Mercer on the backbenches was, was great on, on veterans' rights and so on. He yeah. became veterans minister as a result. He then he tried to do lots of things behind the scenes but publicly said lots of stuff that was quite unpalatable. Yeah. Um, he, he, for example, my nuclear test veteran campaign that I work on for the Mirror, he, he met them but said, look, you're not going to get your justice, you're not going to get your recognition, you're not going to get your medals or your war pensions. And then once he's been sacked from that job, he suddenly turns around and starts backing the nuclear test veterans again. It makes you wonder about principles and well, it, yeah, whether it turned you have out, to sell them to get into government. It turned out Johnny Mercer was more interested in veterans... Uh issues and veteran justice for veterans than he was in the fortunes of the government and the Conservative Party. Yeah. So we had, yeah. But then I suppose the question, the, the, the flip side of that is, what is the point of just being a fog on all yeah. about Ben? You know, there is, a, there is a tension there, isn't it, about when you go into government yeah. and what you, what, you know, does Johnny Mercer achieve more on the backbenchers or than in government? And quite often people, you know, let's be honest, this is basically what we do for a living. But the sort of the backseat drive, oh, I don't think you wanted to do it like that. Yeah. Um, when you find yourself in government, there are competing demands in yeah. terms of policy, in terms of money, in terms of 
um, uh, the law, international relations, and all of that. And it, it, it yeah, some I think people it was, can't hack it. Was it Douglas Heard, or might, it might have been, uh, it might have been uh, one of those other kind of Tory patricians who said to Max Hastings that Max was on the side, however powerful he was, Max was on the sidelines, whereas they were actually on the pitch, and that was the that was the sort of thrill of it, but also the difficulty of it. Yeah. So, and we are on the sidelines, and it's you know that's where we want to be that's kind of but uh, <laughs> but that doesn't excuse the fact that dominic Raab and the foreign office's performance has been atrocious yeah uh i suppose it's whether you, whether you think that the resignation would uh, or the or a forced resignation would would achieve anything other than the satisfaction of seeing dominic Raab lose his job which it would be considerable uh, yeah, so, so I mean, we've had quite a lot of messages in on this. Rosie says, "Why is it everyone can work, else can work from home in the world, but you think Dominic Raab can't?" Uh, I mean, well, Dominic d- Raab thinks he can't because he actually did come home. Yeah. So <laughs> that is a good point. I'd also make the point that quite a lot of people, if they knew they had a big thing coming up at work, probably <laughs> wouldn't go on holiday immediately beforehand. Yeah. Uh, but then someone else, uh, uh, Philip says, uh, Rob's issue is tonally has this all wrong. He's spiky, yeah. aggressive, brusque and overly sensitive. All yeah. the opposite of what an urbane, warm, smooth, diplomatic foreign secretary should be about. Mm-hmm. He is on a charm offensive without the charm. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, uh, but it's an interesting point about what it's like being in government. We did this thing a couple of weeks ago with this um, immersive play. Uh, it's called Crisis, What Crisis? It's all about the Callaghan government in ni- the 1979. Yeah. And uh, Henry Zeffman and I went down. And you're part of the government. You're advising the government oh. and you're negotiating with unions and whipping MPs and that. Very stressful. Yes. Very and stressful. we were particularly bad at the media management and coming yeah. up with slogans. It turns out it's yeah. much more difficult than, yeah. we, than we let on. Yeah, I mean, it, it's... I was remember uh, Peaches Geldof, I think it was, at seven, uh, RIP, <laughs> went 17... Uh, who said she was supporting Tony Blair in 2005 because it was really difficult to run a government, uh, which I thought was supremely wise for a 17-year-old. Oh, we've covered a lot of ground there, from Dominic <laughs> Rob to Peaches Geldof. Um, uh, just, um, there's an interesting, it's sort of broad, yes, we sort of all cast around looking for, for leaders. Really interesting column in The Times today by our colleague Danny Fingelstein about how the centre-right lacks a unifying leader across the world. As ever with Danny, he's got a great anecdote he kicks off with about a meeting, I think it was in 1983, where Margaret Thatcher and uh, Reagan and Helmut Kohl all got together to form the International Democrat Union. Um, And there was a sort of centre-right parties from around the world sort of aligning together. And he makes the point, particularly now with uh, Angela Merkel stepping down, uh, Boris Johnson's relations with most of Europe aren't great, uh, there's no, but you know, the Republicans have gone wild in America. This is a problem that we don't have a, a, a sort of leading, sensible voice of the centre right, Susie. Well, when was the last time, apart from the one you just said it, uh, that you heard of the International Democratic Union? Because <laughs> although Thatcher may have launched it in 1983, no one heard of it afterwards. <laughs> um, so yeah, there is this kind of idea that you, you had a cent- you had a very centrist period, and you had centre right for a while, and then you, you know we're coming out of the third way that um, uh, Clinton and. Uh, Blair and to some extent Obama all espoused of, of not being too left or too right. And that in itself came out of a period in the seven, in the 80s and the 70s and the 60s where they were very divided. And there was, there was lots of very radical left governments and revolutions and communism and still an awful lot of neo-Nazism around. Um, it just, we go in flux. We have periods of centrist politics and periods of extreme politics. We're fairly extreme at the moment, but that always happens in times of great change we've got climate change constitutional change we've got 
demographic change going on. We've got a pandemic now. That always causes massive social flux. It's going to take 20 years to settle down and Danny needs to just... Chill. Be calm and wait for it. Be patient, Be mate. patient. Chill. patient. And the yeah. centre-right means different <laughs> things. I mean, you could make a case for Emmanuel Macron being a centre-right yeah. politician, couldn't you? Uh, I think the main problem that, uh, that Danny alludes to, uh, which I think he can make more of, is the fact that the, um, the American Republican Party's gone, gone loony. Uh, I mean, everything else, as Susie says, is in a state of flux. But that, also... that, is, that is the, the single biggest change from... Uh, Ronald Reagan, who we actually didn't think at the time was centre right, we thought he was, he was we thought he was loony right, but now we can see what that, that, that actually means. Relative. We yeah, see yeah. what that actually means. It's and, also probably Danny. Danny, well, you probably won't mind his point. Is that it's basically his frustration with his own party in this country yes, that it's not yeah, more of all yeah. of his politics. Well, maybe the person who, who could lead this this new group in the centre right is Michael Gove. He seems to be um, making uh, drawing attention to himself anyway. And Robert, yeah. you wrote in the Times. Yesterday, day before? Uh, yeah, yeah, yesterday, yesterday. yeah. Um, uh, you've actually been dancing with Michael Gove. I have, briefly. Did you, mean, so you're, did you teach him these moves? No, I think, if anything, I don't think Mike, I could teach much. I think it's more the other way around, I think. I think some of the moves that I've, that I, I've carried forward into, through, my, through my dancing career <laughs> subsequently, I probably imbibed on that night in Cheltenham uh, <laughs> five, about five years ago where... The, the dance floor threw the two of us together briefly. He's a some mover. <laughs> and I think... Uh, Can you remember what you were dancing to? It was something, it was something pretty generic. It was, it was probably Dancing Queen or Staying Alive or maybe... Or, or September, probably September, I think, yeah. I think he likes his soul classics, Michael. Um, and <laughs> interestingly, Michael Gove is going back to the Cheltenham Literature Festival this summer. So we'll see. Maybe you yeah. should... I'm not going this year, but You're not uh, going. no, but maybe I am now. Actually, yeah. maybe, maybe I can. Maybe book I can a, go and shadow him. Book a, and, book a disco, book, yeah. mobile disco. Yeah, yeah, we'll get you down there with the, the yeah. wheels of get, steel. Get the three-piece white suit out, <laughs> Susie. What do you think? Part of me thinks just leave the man alone. He's allowed to go dancing. I wouldn't want anybody filming my dancing. In fact, somebody did at our barbecue a couple of weeks ago, and nobody wants to see that in the morning. No, and I'd be, there's, you know, there's two things here. First off is that um, everyone who gets divorced has an interesting life in the years immediately afterwards. And I'm, I'm waiting for the next bit because this is not the most exciting that it's going to get, I'm sure. Um, but the other thing is, if you are uh, a cabinet minister, cabinet office minister, uh, you are, you're in government and you know all these state secrets and all the rest of it. How do you not know that someone is filming you on a dance floor? And if he did, did he carry on? Maybe he just doesn't care. Did he put some effort in? Maybe he doesn't care. I know. Dance like nobody's watching or filming it for the mirror website. That's the that's the that's the old rule. But there's a lot of security (laughs) issues. I would have thought would come into play as to whether he was really quite aware of what was happening. And if you're not aware, why not? Oh, I think I think let him carry on. If, if frankly, yeah. frankly, maybe that's what Michael Gove, but maybe that's what Dominic Raab needs to do. He needs a night out in Aberdeen with Michael Gove, get him to loosen mm. up and be. I haven't be a bit seen more him human. dancing, but I don't think have, he doesn't. Have you he doesn't. heard the Dominic Raab story? I don't know if I can repeat this one. I, it's, on, it's been on Pop Bitch a lot. Uh, my my sense is probably not. Let's let's. <laughs> <laughs> but can you email it to me afterwards? Please? Yes, exactly. If you really share it, we'll, we'll revisit it at a later date <laughs> when the lawyers aren't having a meltdown. Susan Boniface and Robert Crampton. Then, of course, you read uh, Robert in The Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next is Tishinati Kingdom. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. 
But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This is the Red Box Podcast. Now it's time for this. From Land's End to John O'Groats, St David's to Southend-on-Sea, and Belfast to Bognor Regis. England, Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland. This is Disunited Kingdom on Times Radio. Yes, it's that time of the week where we bring you political news from the four corners of the UK. So let's uh, let's find out who we've got today in Wales. Will Hayward from Wales Online. Hi, Will. Hi, Matt. Uh, nice to have you with us. Um, you seem to have a new job title every time you come on. Still, what is it, Welsh Affairs King? Uh, uh, I prefer Emperor, actually. Oh, um, right, fine. Well, I think it's only a matter of time before you're Emperor of Wales. Um, uh, that's fine. The flag in Wales, uh, Will Hayward from Wales Online. Uh, Katrina Stewart, senior reporter and columnist at the Herald and Glasgow Times. Hi, Katrina. Good morning. And it's Chief Reporter, if we're going to be Chief Reporter. Well, let's get all this correct. <laughs> Chief Reporter uh, at the uh, Herald and Glasgow Times. Uh, Brendan Hughes from Belfast Live. Um, your job title, please. My job title is still political reporter. Very good. Well, give it time. That might have changed by the end of the show. And uh, um, uh, Natalie Fahey, uh, editor of Nottinghamshire Live. That's correct. Yes, exactly right. Well, 50% strike rate. Uh, That's a pass, isn't it? We'd have got that a bit of a C in the olden days uh, on the job title fund. Right, lovely stuff. Well, let's let's sort of um, just have a whistle stop uh, tour of just what's going on politically in your patch. We'll talk sort of COVID. Um, uh, in a moment, but let's let's focus on the politics uh, first of all. Katrina in Scotland. So the big political story is this: this deal is it the coalition deal, which isn't a coalition deal between the SNP and the Greens. And for the first time, uh, Green MSPs are in government. It's the first time the Greens have been in government anywhere in the UK. Explain who they are and what they're going to be doing. So the Greens and the SNP have signed. Uh, a power sharing deal essentially which puts the two co-leaders of the Scottish Greens into gives them ministerial positions so we've got Patrick Harvey who's now responsible for zero carbon buildings active travel and tenants rights and we have Lorna Slater who is minister for green skills circular economy and biodiversity We have learned this week that that means that the Scottish Greens are going to lose a leader slot at First Minister's Questions, and they'll also lose about £18,000 a year in short money. But obviously, I I think uh, the suggestion is that the Greens have pushed back against that, but obviously they get uh, significant power in exchange for that loss. And uh, this really, uh, I think, for the Greens has the possibility to make things difficult for them in that if they have any big successes during this partnership it'll be difficult for them to take the credit for it 
and not have the SNP take credit. And conversely, if there's any difficult decisions, then it'll be hard for them to put clear water between themselves and the SNP. But, you know, we'll have to see which party this works out the best for. Yeah, if you want to know how it works out for the smaller party, um, we could probably uh, give you Nick Clegg's number. Uh, he could probably give you a fair idea. But it's an interesting, an interesting question, isn't it? Because particularly because the, the, the electoral system in Scotland is designed to create a hung parliament. It wasn't supposed to be that one party should dominate. So therefore, these sorts of arrangements are, are, are supposed to be the norm, aren't they? And if you are interested in political cooperation and working together, then eventually you have to put your money where your mouth is and go into government. Yeah, I mean, this really sort of formalises that and firms things up. And Nicola Sturgeon's popularity did really soar during the pandemic, but it was far from straightforward, far from an easy time for her. You know, Deputy First Minister John Swinney very narrowly avoided a vote of no confidence. There was the Alex Salmond inquiry. And this really gives the SNP a stable majority. So there is a real benefit there for the SNP and they, they, I think they did have hopes of winning a majority at the last election but realistically that was unlikely to happen so this I think they will hope that this will smooth out contentious issues for them so reforming the Gender Recognition Act is a huge bone of contention in Scotland at the moment it's caused big splits in the party but the Greens and the SNP are of one mind on this issue so I think the hope is that for things like this it's really going to help. That's the picture in Scotland as the, as the Green Party enters uh, government in the, uh, Holyrood. Uh, Will Haywood in Wales, climate change uh, very much on the agenda there as well? Yeah, so, well, in Wales as well, uh, the Welsh Parliament's designed to have a hung parliament, but actually um, Mark Drakeford ended up winning a, um, a majority, um, a working majority anyway. And uh, he's created a new department, the Climate Change Department, which uh, obviously is not that unusual. But it, what is unusual is they put transport under um, the climate change banner, if you will. So Julie James is heading up this massive department which covers a whole range of things. Um, and there's been quite a few things that have come in straight away. So there's been a, um, a freeze on road building. So any roads now built in Wales, there has to be a, a climate or environmental justification for them. So um, she's come out and said that um, it's increasing, um, making journey times faster is no longer a justification for building a road, which is a bit of a change. Um, we've also um, seen that um, gas boilers, um, there's going to be no gas boilers apparently in Wales by uh, 2030. And as someone who's just put in a gas boiler, at great expense i'm delighted um, <laughs> about that um but it, it is a real issue because obviously climate change is going to affect everyone but wales is particularly vulnerable in certain ways so um cardiff is the most at-risk city from sea level rise so um the capital we've also got um uh, issues around flooding especially in the valleys which are some of the poorest areas in the whole of the uk um we've also um seen big problems with um uh, port talbot so Port Talbot Steelworks, it's very hard for Wales to hit its climate targets with an enormous steelworks, which contributes a significant percentage of our emissions. So it's going to be a real um, interesting how this climate change department goes forward. Um, they've set, uh, they will be setting some emissions targets um, for specifically for Wales um, over the, by the end of the year. Um, so we're told. So this is actually a really, especially around road building with issues with the M4 and the, the relief road around Newport, which was cancelled by the First Minister a few years ago um, after great expense was put into planning for it. Uh, that's it. That's it. What's more with the reaction, do you think, from people in Wales, uh, Will? Um, because 
I mean, public transport is not the not the best. So if if do people want more roads built, or do you think this people will accept that you, that, that that this is part of Wales doing its bit for climate change? Uh, I think if you live in a in the ten miles around Newport, you'd absolutely want a, a new road built because um, there's huge huge levels of asthma in young people there. The um, average um, the age of people tie there is is lower, and a lot of that is down to respiratory conditions. Um, it, climate polls do suggest that actually climate change is seen as one of the big bigger issues now and people do care about it um but i think the the issue is they're not seeing necessary alternatives and large parts of rural wales the car is still the best option if you want to get around and there hasn't necessarily been any um there's plans for a south wales metro for instance but I, you can't get on that at the moment so um I, I think people um like it in principle but if um it directly affects your your life on a daily basis i imagine you would still quite like to see a, a bypass going around your city so that's the picture in Wales. Will uh, mentioned there uh, boilers and how you heat your homes. This is a, this is a political hot topic in Nottingham, isn't it, Natalie? Yes, that's right. And um, heating and uh, energy companies is a big thing people in Nottingham will be familiar with because um, it's been quite well documented. The city council is in a lot of debt. In fact, in December last year, um, they're on the verge of bankruptcy with a billion pounds of debt. And a big contributor to this was the collapse of Robin Hood Energy last year, um, which was a £38 million black hole for the city council. It was their own energy company. They owned it, but they kept pumping loans into it. And it was a, a massive failure. You know, the whole point of it being to provide cheaper energy for people on low incomes. So you think they would have learned their lesson, but um, it appears they haven't. There's another energy company that the council owned as well called Enviro Energy. Well, it's, it's a separate company. They're going to be taking over ownership of it soon. Unfortunately, it's been going for 20 years. The city council has been propping up with £11 million worth of loans and uh, they're going to be taking it in-house. They need to upgrade the heating system that's it overseas, which I'll explain what it is in a minute. It's quite <laughs> archaic. And, um, you know, it's going to cost £17 million to upgrade that heating system, which is going to be a cost to Nottingham taxpayers again. The heating system that is in existence in Nottingham, is in one area called St Anne's, which is quite a deprived area. It's been in existence since the 1970s, and it basically consists of um, pipes under the roads, which carry um, uh, hot water around and heat the houses in that area. It's called a district heating system. I don't know how unique it is in the country, but I think it's probably quite unique. And it's going to cost a lot of money to upgrade that, and it's very unappealing to outside investors. So the city council's got to take it on, on top of all its existing debt and liabilities. And um, you know, for taxpayers in Nottingham, bad news, I'd say. It does seem to be a big problem. It's probably one of those things which starts out with the best of intentions. Um, you know, the promise of lower bills or a greener uh, sort of heating, and then it ends up spiralling and then the ta local taxpayers end up picking it up. Um, let's head to Northern Ireland now. Brendan Hughes uh, is there. Um, anything green on your on your watch? Um, or do, do you want to should we jump straight to this uh, this extraordinary opinion poll that came out a couple of days ago? Nothing green particularly <laughs> at the moment going on this week, although I do know that Northern Ireland apparently is the only place in the UK that doesn't have climate change legislation. Currently, although later on in the autumn, there's going to be a battle of the climate bills because we have the Green Party heading up one bill in Northern Ireland, which wants to see net zero by 2045, whereas the DUP run Agriculture and Environment Department, they are putting forward their own bill, which has a slightly more relaxed target. So there's going to be a that's going to come to a head later in the year. 
But in terms of what's, I suppose, the big news that's been going on the last couple of days in Northern Ireland has been um, this opinion poll on voting intentions for next year's assembly election. We don't usually get very many polls in Northern Ireland. A lot of the big polling companies in Britain wouldn't really um, look at Northern Ireland in particular detail, but there is one polling company here, Lucid Talk, and their latest poll shows a further slump in support for the Democratic Unionist Party, the DUP. They are on 13% in this poll, slipping a further three points from May. And to put that in context, the DUP is the Northern Ireland's largest party. It's the largest unionist party. It has held the first minister position in Northern Ireland for more than a decade. And at last, at the 2019 Westminster election, the DUP won around 31% of the vote. So that's losing almost half of its vote, according to this poll, if that result comes to fruition next May. They have fallen to fourth place in terms of the parties in Northern Ireland tied with Alliance and the SDLP. And they're also crucially being overtaken by their unionist rivals, the Ulster Unionists, who are on 16%, and the um, more hardline TUV, who are on 14%. So if this was to come to pass, it would be a huge turnaround in terms of the makeup of the Northern Ireland Assembly. And it really, what we're seeing is a three-way split in the unionist vote in Northern Ireland following the turmoil in the DUP over um, having to change its party leader twice in recent months. And there's been a lot of, in terms of unionist and loyalist areas, there's been a lot of um, discontent over its handling of Brexit and the Northern Ireland Protocol. So we're seeing that vote, it seems, split between um, its rival, unionist rivals. And therefore, that puts Sinn Féin, the largest um, nationalist party in Northern Ireland, on course to hold for the first time the First Minister's position um, in the power-sharing executive. So I suppose that, you know, there's obviously a lot of things that could happen in the meantime. There's a lot of work to be done at Stormont in the, the months ahead, but it's, parties are already choosing their election candidates and they're announcing them in social media and in press releases that we get sent every day. So it looks set that it's going to be a fascinating election campaign. Yeah, it really does. I mean, if, if Bob Johnson thinks it's a headache having Nicola Sturgeon wanting independence in Scotland, uh, having, this, having Sinn Féin in charge in... Uh, in Northern Ireland will only add to uh, his woes. Right, in a moment, I wanna, uh, we'll have a roundup on where we are with COVID in each uh, of your parts of the country. And we'll also try and find some lighter news if you've got a fun story tucked up your sleeve. Uh, we're doing Dish United Kingdom on Times Radio in association with GoDaddy, providing the helping tools you need to grow your business online. Stories of our times from the Times and the Sunday Times. One agenda-setting story told in depth by experts. I'm Manveen Rana. I'm David Aronovich. Go beyond the headlines with original quality journalism and exclusive interviews. What happens in the next year may define this country for the next 40 years. We take you to the heart of the stories that matter. With exclusive access and reporting, you'll hear from the best and most informed journalists from the UK's most trusted news. Newspaper. It's published for the start of your day and you can listen for free on the Times Radio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Stories of Our Times. Matt Chorley on Times Radio with GoDaddy. Providing all the help and tools you need to grow your business online. Good morning, nice to have you with us, Matt Chorley, on Times Radio. Just a little bit of breaking news to bring you. The double child killer Colin Pitchfork has been released from prison. Uh, it has been confirmed uh, he raped and killed two 15-year-olds in Leicestershire in the 1980s. Uh, his release was the subject of uh, some controversy over the summer. 
but uh, an appeal against his release is, was rejected and it's just been confirmed that Colin Pitchfork has been released from prison. That's been confirmed in the last few minutes. Uh, here on Times Radio, we are bring, doing Disunited Kingdom, bringing you political news in the four corners of the UK, still joined by uh, Brendan Hughes, political reporter for Belfast Live, Natalie Fahey, editor of Nottinghamshire Live, Will Hayward, Welsh Affairs Editor from Wales Online, and Katrina Stewart, Chief Reporter and Columnist at the Herald and Glasgow Times. Uh, just a quick um, uh, check-in on where we all are with uh, coronavirus, COVID, both in terms of cases and the politics of it. Um, we've previously, Boris Johnson's promised an inquiry into uh, the handling of the, the pandemic. That's not due to start till next year. I think Nicola Sturgeon's promised one in Scotland uh, to begin by the end of the year. But so far, at least, Mark Drakeford's holding out against one in Wales, Will Hayward. to actually have a Welsh inquiry, not least because he's made um, a great show of wanting increased powers for Wales and increased responsibility and so-called home rule. And yet it's been suggested he doesn't actually want the scrutiny that comes with that. Now, there are good um, reasons why he thinks there needs to just be a UK inquiry. There was um, significant parts of the pandemic where the the handling of the virus in Wales was made harder by the UK government, especially around testing. There was a, um, a deal that Wales had secured with the company Roach for 5,000 tests way back in April when we were been told to test, 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 um, which was commandeered by the UK government. There was also an issue where the UK government set up a testing centre in the Cardiff City Stadium, which uh, without actually telling uh, the Welsh government or Public Health Wales, which actually put Wales on a, um, like a dual testing uh, system. So actually there was tests um, which are done by the Welsh government and some by the Lighthouse Labs and the only way to re-identify to lay people what it was is whether it went up your nose or not because the Welsh ones were just in your throat. So there's a lot of reasons why he wants that but there's also very very legitimate reasons that the Welsh government needs to be properly scrutinised uh, and not simply a footnote in a wider UK inquiry. Now um, some of these are simply the death figures. So uh, actually far more people died in Wales in the second wave um, of the virus than in the first wave and the Welsh government overwhelmingly was in control of the handling of the pandemic in the second wave. Um, there were issues, they, Wales couldn't have perhaps the longest circuit breaker lockdown back in um, October last year because Rishi Sunak um, wouldn't extend the furlough scheme just for Wales so that did tie the hands of the Welsh government a little bit but there's there's no doubt that the there were key decisions that were made in Wales, simply in Wales that affected people in Wales and lessons need to be learned in Wales. And there is a strong argument been made that if you do not um, scrutinise these decisions within Wales itself, it actually kind of makes a mockery of wanting further devolution. Um, so that's a real um, a, a real issue facing um, Mark Drake for the moment. He's been sent a letter by the um, Welsh um, bereaved, COVID bereaved families group, which are saying that they, they want strong answers. I mean, Wales has um, a slightly different as its own health service and if decisions are made about that here we should really be scrutinizing it properly but as yet he is still um digging in his heels um on this so we'll see uh, how that plays out in the coming weeks uh, that's a picture in wales uh, how is it looking in scotland uh, katrina glasgow and lanarkshire now have the highest covid rates in europe uh we're told uh, i mean in part it seems to be linked to the return of schools but not entirely 
Yeah, so it's a really stark picture in Scotland at the moment. COVID infections are currently 36 times higher than at this point last year. As you say, Glasgow and Lanarkshire now have the highest COVID rates in Europe and it's nice to be first for something, but there certainly isn't a table we want to be topping. So the health boards here in Glasgow and in Lanarkshire have uh, introduced restricted visiting times and issued warnings to people not to attend at A&E because they're really under strain. But as you say, our schools have been back for a couple of weeks now. So that's part of the reason that cases are higher. Our restrictions lifted on August the 9th. So it was expected that cases would go up following that. And we're also testing a significant amount more than we were this time last year. So more cases are being picked up. But, you know, the Scottish government now are really having to walk quite a tightrope between reinvigorating the economy and restarting the health service while also trying to keep people safe. So we've been asked to take our own precautions, just limit our contacts, make sure that we're meeting outdoors, just, you know, being very mindful, being very cautious. Furlough stops at the end of September. So there is an argument there that perhaps restricting hospitality businesses while there's this option of furlough uh, would be a good idea. And we've also got to remember we've got COP26 coming up, uh, more green. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Especially, you know, we have to make sure this goes ahead now that Greta Thunberg's been criticising <laughs> the green There seems to be some question marks, doesn't there, whether or not people arriving are going to have to go through the, um, you know, all the COVID checks and all that sort of thing as people arriving in the UK. So we just see how, how, how that pans out. I'm just I'm slightly conscious of uh, time. Um, anyone got anything lighter, a bit of fun from your pack? Who's got somebody's got a story about Danny DeVito? That's me. <laughs> Go on then, Brendan. Give us your uh, give us your best Danny DeVito. Well, you, you've spoiled the punchline as I was going to introduce it. I, I was going to say that there's a rather unusual casting call that has been um, <laughs> in North in Ireland that's been called out. And um, movieextras.ie um, recently has been searching for someone who is four foot five inches tall and boasts a 41 inch waistline and that's because as you've revealed they were have been looking for a body double for the Hollywood star Danny DeVito his US sitcom it's always sunny in Philadelphia I, I haven't seen it but apparently it's on Netflix and it's very popular it's set in an Irish pub called Paddy's Pub of course um, they have been filming an episode of the, the series in Dublin and they have been looking for someone to play DeVito's character, Frank the Warthog um, Reynolds. <laughs> Does and that mean so he's not the, coming? Is that is that because he's not coming to Northern Ireland? I, I'm, I'm not sure. I suppose that, you know, the, this is sort of a thing that they do quite often in, in yeah. sitcoms and different films where they they will have a body double to stand in while the, they film the reactions of the other actor. Exactly, I know that because he's too busy. You would have seen, yeah. would have seen like um, different clips of Friends, for example, that, um, that you would see that you would, if you look closely, you realise that the person sitting beside Ross or Rachel or whoever is not actually the one of the other um, star actors. They just put in a body double. So perhaps it's something like that. But this this could turn out to be um, a very good windfall for whoever is chosen because I noticed that this uh, show is on its 15th season and has been commissioned for another four seasons in total. So if they ever come back to the island of Ireland, the, this um, body double, if they, they find them, could be in for a nice pay packet. Lovely stuff. It's not it's nice work if you can get it. Although for, waists of 41, even, my, even my, my holiday efforts haven't pushed my waist up to 41. Anyway, just fine. Before we do one more story, anyone else got one story they want to share? with us 
I can give you lots of celebrities visiting random parts of Wales. If you're <laughs> Go on then, Will. Best celebrity uh, so, you've had in Wales? Oh, it's um, it's been a bit mad because obviously everyone has to staycation now and Wales is a lovely place. We've had um, Tom, Tom Hardy visiting Barry Island twice, which apparently couldn't get enough the first time. So Barry Island's a lovely place to visit. Um, we've had Dizzy Rascal in Milford Haven. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and we've had uh, Russell Brand in uh, an Asda uh, in Carnarvon. So it's um, everyone's <laughs> in their mind about what a star-spangled place Wales is. I'll tell you what, there's a good this text in there. We've only had uh, Michael Gould dancing in an Aberdeen nightclub and you've got Tom Hardy. <laughs> I, I, yeah. I, yeah, I think aesthetically we might be winning on this one. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I, well, I'm all for Michael Gove dancing a nightclub. I think leave the poor man alone. Uh, he looked like he was enjoying himself. Lovely to speak to you all. That was Natalie Fay there, editor of Nottinghamshire Live. We also heard from Brendan Hughes, political reporter for Belfast Live. Katrina Stewart is chief reporter and columnist of the Herald and Glasgow Times in Scotland. And Will Haywood, Welsh Affairs editor uh, of Wales Online. He's in charge of all of matters Welsh. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. <laughs> 